I meet someone today for lunch about working a record, they might call me in two years, you know? Someone they talk to might call me in five, you know? If I'm thinking I'm going to have lunch with somebody on a Tuesday and do the record on a Thursday or Friday, and that's how I live my life, I'm, I'm going to get frustrated and quit. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's Lid Shaw, your host for Recording Studio Rockstars. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals, to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Mr. Chris Mara, owner of Nashville's Welcome to 1979 Recording Studio and owner of Mara Machines, the largest analog tape machine restoration company in the world. Chris's passion for recording led to founding the analog-centric Welcome to 1979, which has clients such as Pete Townsend, Eric Burden, Brendan Benson, The Features, North Mississippi All-Stars, The Proto-Man, John Oates, and Jack White's Third Man Records, among many. Welcome to 1979 also has a beautiful cutting lathe and vinyl mastering department, making masters for Sony Records, Warner Records, Compass Records, and Concord Records, along with many independent artists. Mara Machines restores analog MCI tape machines in use all over the world. Canada, Mexico, Greece, Vietnam, England, Brazil, and of course, the United States. Mara Machines' clients include also Pete Townsend, Arcade Fire, Live, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, Ryan Freeland, Greg Wells, and Justin Niebang. And Rockstars, this is something really cool that you will want to know about. Welcome to 1979 is also ground zero for a yearly recording summit, inviting you to meet panels of experts that have included inspiring producers like Vance Powell, Richard Dodd, Mitch Easter, Gary Pachosa, Larry Crane, and mastering engineer Hank Williams during previous years. Chris also hosts a regular event called Tape Camp, where you can spend a weekend in the studio learning all about analog tape, from aligning the machines right down through recording an analog tape session. I'll include links to all this stuff in the show notes, of course, and you can find out more just by clicking there. Chris is also someone who I have admired for years for his keen business acumen as a studio owner. He's built a successful recording studio, starting as an independent engineer, sending newsletter emails to friends, to a thriving commercial recording studio with clients all over the world. Please welcome Chris Mara to Recording Studio Rockstars. Chris, are you ready to rock? Of course. <laughs> Welcome, dude. I hope you don't mind my lengthy introduction. No, I, I'm flattered. Thank you. Nice, man. Well, I really have have truly admired your work for years since the first time I met you was, I remember being invited to a party here when you opened the studio. Mm -hmm. And literally, I was receiving newsletter emails from you, you know, as you traveled around the, the country doing recordings in barns and various places. Uh, can you tell us more about who you are and introduce yourself in your own words? Sure. Uh, I mean, you did a great job. I don't think I can add to that much. I'm from what I call upstate Wisconsin. was raised working on farms and stuff, and I had a passion for music and went to a two-year recording school, more of a community college, and moved here to Nashville in 1995. Did an internship that led to some assisting gigs or full-time assisting gigs, which led to some engineering gigs and all of a sudden I'm engineering all the time, producing a little bit, and then, you know, 20 years later, I have my own studio with interns. So Wisconsin, do you, were you surrounded by recording and music up there, or was this Not something you just read about on? Yeah, did you I, have the internet at that point? No, no, this is you know 
I graduated high school in 1993, so there wasn't any of that. So it was mainly just my friends joined, you know, started a rock band and learned about that and wanted to be like a lighting guy for some reason. Yeah. And, well, and lights are fun. I've done lights for shows. Yeah, exactly. It's a blast. Yeah. And and it's what you could see when you went to a, a show, go to Minneapolis see a show and kind of got into that. And It's too bad Minneapolis wasn't much of a hub for music back then, huh? It wasn't, you know, and, and that's what, well, I mean, it was and it wasn't. It, it Everyone kind of would tell you you know who they worked with i mean i'm joking of course because that's where prince is from and the replacements and and that's kind of how it is when you when you are a budding engineer in minneapolis you say they say what do you do i said i'm a recording engineer oh do you know prince you're like no and that's the end of the conversation (laughs) it's like oh you must not be doing anything if you don't know prince so that's a little having that one-dimensional aspect is a little bit different so yeah well, so you came down to Nashville, mm-hmm. you interned and uh, worked in some various studios. And then when I first met you, you seemed to be doing a lot of traveling too. Did you, what was the story behind that? Were you going out and going to faraway places to do records or were you mostly doing things here in Nashville? Both. What I was trying at that time was really to transition from healthy assisting gigs, which I did full time, to making my own, like breaking that catch 22 of becoming a recording engineer. And the first question everyone asks you is, well, what have you done? Well, nothing. You should hire me. Isn't a really good answer. You right, know? Right. So I just, I decided to go wherever I could go to make music. And I had people that would give me a try out at their place, their studio, whatever. And that was kind of the beginning of the traveling. I went to Cleveland a lot, back to Minneapolis where I knew people. And I'm connected because I live in Nashville. So I kind of just, just pushed that as far as I could. Yeah. You know? I remember doing some of that too. Mm-hmm. When I was, I had come sort of from St. Louis here because I'd been in school in St. Louis. And by being in Nashville, people considered me to have some cred, you know, to Mm -hmm. come and and work with bands there. So I understand what you mean going back and and working with the people you know and and building a career. But you were doing something that really struck me at that point too, which is I remember getting on your email list somehow Mm -hmm. and, um, and receiving a newsletter from you. And it was like, you were telling this whole story about recording a band in the barn and, right. you know, and it had like, I feel like it had a little press play and watch a video clip in my yep. email. And yep. I thought that was just the coolest thing. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of what I was doing was getting borderline burned out, assisting. So when I did want to engineer, I want to do different and exciting things. So a lot of trips to Wisconsin, I would go to a commercial recording studio with a band and do the basic tracks. And then my in-laws at the time, no, wait, they're still my in-laws. At the time, <laughs> they had... <laughs> don't want to tell you phrases, stuff. Hey, you did that, that's yeah. a true sign of success in recording if, if it's still, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Same in-laws. Uh, at the time, they had a cabin rental business. So I would track, like I said, in a, in a commercial studio and then grab my laptop rig and go out to these cabins and do all the overdubs. And that's how bands could afford me because I would just... Uh, I wouldn't charge them for the cabin rental because I wasn't being charged for the cabin rental because... I'm like the best son-in-law on the planet. So that's kind of the thing. And then my friend had this barn and he let me record bands in it. So I'd, I'd spend a couple weeks of summer doing that. Yeah. And that's how I could afford to vacation too, you know, like take, because my wife's from up there. So take the family up there and a working vacation. So That's cool. So you yeah. guys are camped out in a cabin, mm-hmm. you know, with a makeshift studio and you're just running mic lines to different rooms or something like yeah, that. Yeah, mainly and vocals and acoustic guitars, stuff that wasn't that loud, you know. But they were small lakes, so if it was a guitar overdub here and there, it was fine. Um, okay, cool. Well, so, you know, you were, you were, did, when you set out to go do this, you intentionally wanted to remove yourself maybe from being in a supportive role to 
establishing yourself as an engineer and a producer and building mm -hmm. your own career, right? Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you, at that time, had a vision for what you could do with it? Or did you just know you just wanted to make your next record something that was your own? Yeah, I always wanted to have, well, I wanted to have fun and do interesting things while recording. Because, you, you know, you spend enough time in a conventional studio and you kind of just want to go on a little adventure here and there. But not... I didn't want to do that all the time because then it's like, can I just walk into a place as a console? Right. So I started to appreciate both, right? Yeah. I guess my only goal was not to not to do country. I wanted to do music that I liked listening to and would yeah. purchase. I suffer from yeah. that same affliction too. Yeah. Um, it's sort of ironic that we moved to Nashville, the best place in the world to make country records, and, and maybe we wanted to make something, some other kind of record. Right. It worked to my advantage though because – Doing, I did a couple of years of of music row demos, and you have to get really good really fast. I mean, everyone shows up at nine thirty, you know this, and you're recording at ten ten, and drums, bass, guitars, acoustic guitar, piano, the whole deal. Yeah. So I parlayed that skill set that I was forced to learn into independent bands. We're on a budget. I'm like, look, guys, you show up at ten. We're going to be recording at 1030. It's going to sound awesome. And a lot of their experiences in a studio were the opposite. They'd show up, the guy's still plugging in cables, lunchtime rolls around, they start getting sounds, and they're paying for this. Right, you know? right. So that level of professionalism was really appreciated by people spending the hard-earned money. And then, you know, unbeknownst to me, doing these rock bands, I would bring them into studios I was assisting a lot at. Because I knew the manager. I'm like, hey, this is a cash gig. I get a little bit better deal. Just do it and leave. I didn't need anything, I had the key to the place, you know, so they didn't need to get involved. And then when they got calls for things that weren't country, they'd call me to engineer it. Right, because they're like, that guy can take care of it all. Yeah, and then that here. led to just the oddest gigs, you know, working with Juvenile and that kind of stuff because it wasn't country. So, yeah. Which was it, Juvenile, fun. was that one of the bands you were working with? Yeah, he's a rap artist. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Shows how much I know. <laughs> well, so very cool. I want to get into how you transition from that into this amazing place here. We're standing in the control room at Welcome to 1979. Uh, but before we do, would you like to start us off with an inspirational quote? Sure. You know, um, I'm a list guy. I have a list in my phone of what I'm going to do every day. And at the top, I just have it on there for like a year. It says, there's no immediate escape from endurance. Right. So I like that, man. It's like yeah. it's, there's, there's no shortcut to the top. No. It would be the same kind of idea, right? Yeah, it's like, come on. Okay. You know, when we walked in the door, we ran into Cameron, who's mm -hmm. here, and he's become a serious runner. And it's that same idea. You know, when you're running, you just, I mean, you can run a little faster, but you pretty much just have to just keep running until you get there. Right, right. So what does that mean to you and your journey here? You know, what, what are some examples of the endurance process from starting out as an assistant to building this incredible studio? Well, I think, I mean... I guess that what that reminds me every morning when I look at my list is if you're seeking out instant gratification, you're in the wrong business. You know, I meet someone today for lunch to about work on a record. They might call me in two years, you know. Someone they talk to might call me in five, you know. If I'm thinking I'm going to have lunch with somebody on a Tuesday and do the record on a Thursday or Friday, and that's how I live my life, I'm, I'm going to get frustrated and quit. Yeah. So it's just kind of like do good all the time. You know, not throw caution to the wind. You know, I don't throw stuff out to the universe very often, you know. It's just that kind of a, a grounding, just work hard and keep your nose to the grindstone. So there was a, another analogy that I heard about recently, which is kind of similar to that too, although there seemed like a shortcut at the end. 
I think it was the Chinese bamboo tree, okay. which when you plant the seed, you you come back and you water it attentively, and then next season nothing, and then you water it attentively, and next season nothing, and maybe on year three or year four, all of a sudden it comes up from the ground. And I think it grows to 80 feet tall in a matter of six weeks or something oh, wow. absurd like that. Wow. You know? <laughs> just, I thought it was a pretty amazing concept. And it's, I like what you're saying, You know, the idea of building relationships with people and being patient mm-hmm. and just putting in the endurance and the work. And then do you find that there are times when you know the bamboo grows to 80 feet tall and surprises you? Yeah, it does surprise you. And then you think, well, this is just a long time coming, you know? And then after they leave or the gig is done, you have to go get another one, yeah. you know, which is fun. Well, so tell us about a time when you were doing this where you had a real failure experience, something where things seemed to really not go well for you, but maybe it turned into a great learning experience. Well, it's a good segue because you were just talking about the marketing that I did and do and, and all that. And I seriously, like, legally can't go into details about the story, but I had a major misstep regarding social media and oh, a project no. I was working on. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Well, it was bad, and, and it came from a really good place. It was an honest mistake on my behalf, but a mistake. Nonetheless, that potentially costs people a lot of money and grief. Wow. And the learning point was I just called the top person that, that I offended. He didn't know me. I said, Mr. So-and-so. I said, Mr. I said, my name is Chris Mara. I've caused you a lot of grief because of this, and... He laid into me and he said, you tell your intern, whoever does your social media that, I said, that, that's me. I did that. And just kind of, I was scared shitless. And luckily that lesson has served me well because I always ask now, do you mind if I post this? Even when I think it's going to be a yes, well, that's the most dangerous, of yeah. course. And a lot of them have been like, no, no, not yet, you know. And so I've learned from that mistake. I try to learn from other people's mistakes. That's the easiest way to do it. But- that's that's a big recent one for me. Um, so what's fascinating to me about that is you've got something like social media, and you are trying really hard and honestly, and I mean, of course, you didn't share the details, but my interpretation is you were trying really hard to do the right thing, which mm-hmm. was promotion. Mm-hmm. You're probably trying to help an artist that you're working with or mm-hmm. um, somebody who's here with a label or something like that, and you're trying to you know use these tools to promote and, and build mm-hmm. the business and accidentally just through one small move, you make a mistake of putting something that somebody else doesn't want to be put out there and step on somebody's toes. So what's your takeaway from all that? I guess it's just, you know, make sure you ask permission and and check with people before you even. Yeah. The takeaway is you can't unring a bell. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you want it to reach far. So ask permission because it will reach far if you do a good job. Yeah, so just if there's one thing you can learn from me is is because it was a close call. It was a big, big deal. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just someone upset. It was a big deal, and I had no idea, like none. I wouldn't have done it. That's my that was kind of my defense. If I known this would have happened, I mean, it had to be an honest mistake. There's no way I would knowingly have done this. But I always ask. It's a simple question. Well, so um, do you ever find that sometimes it's frustrating waiting around to ask and get an answer? Yeah, but that's a lot less frustrating than having to call somebody and, <laughs> and apologize. And apologize. <laughs> well, all right. So now how about um, sharing with us a story of a moment of success for you, something where things really came together and you were just excited about it. You felt like, can't believe this is happening now. That has to be working with Pete Townsend last year. He'd been a Mara Machines client for a few years with little interaction with me personally. 
He bought machines through Vintage King. His sales rep, Ryan McGuire, set everything up. So it was mainly just an email here or there with Pete. And then my phone rings one day, and it's Pete Townsend. To the point I'm walking around the studio looking, thinking that someone's messing with me. Anyway, so he booked a few days at the studio, and that was surreal. And he walked in, and we just started working, and some great musicians on it, of course. And afterwards, he left, and I looked around, and he loved everything. I mean, he loved it. And I didn't do anything different. Didn't rent a piece of gear, didn't rent a cable, didn't, you know, I just did what I do. and Do it the way you normally do it. And, yeah, and that was kind of like, oh, wow. I would have done it any way he wanted it, but we started out the way I do things and didn't have to stray. So that was kind of like, oh, okay, this is starting to work. Starting yeah, that's cool. Up. So the takeaway there is that, you know, while you do have an amazing collection of gear here, your sense after that was that you and your process, you know, you who you are as Chris Marr, the engineer, the producer, just doing things the way you do it was Pete Townsend worthy. Yeah. And he is one <laughs> of the few that have recorded anywhere, can record with anybody. I mean, I can't think of somebody who wouldn't return his phone call. Yeah. And I, I'd do it. Yeah. Pete, call me. Exactly. Try me out. Yeah. And to to have him not only happy, but like send me follow-up emails saying, hey, I'll listen to this bag in England. Sounds awesome. Thank you so much for your time. You know, that kind of thing. That's cool. It's, it's um, very, very I think nice. it was... Maybe it was one of the VH1 specials, classic album series, where I think they showed him in his studio uh, making of, um, I don't remember which album it was, but it was, he he had his BCM 10 console and mm -hmm. he was, you know, playing all these great parts through it. And so now I like to picture that your tape machine is paired up with his BCM 10 and he's yeah. mix, mixing that at his studio. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. All right. So Chris, tell us about Welcome to 1979. You know, you set out to sort of make your own mark on the world and you made quite a mark. Mm -hmm. So describe this place to us. Where are we? What is this all about? And why did you create it? The idea was slow, but as a freelance engineer, you rent studios and I was attracting these rock bands. So, you know, I had success in that, but it was getting harder and harder for bands to justify my expense in a studio's expense. And because technology, this is 10, 12, 13 years ago, technology was getting to the point where a home studio was pretty damn good, you know, and I was attracting bands from you know, Indianapolis and Minneapolis and Cleveland and that kind of thing. I mean, a studio engineer there were half as much. And bands said to me, they, you know, like, hey, last record, it was a little bit more to work with you, you know, and now these guys have dropped the rates and yours has gone up a little bit. We can't really do twice as much. Okay, I get that, you know. You didn't just tell them to play twice as many notes in, right, the, exactly. in the time. Yeah, let's do half as many songs. Yeah, it doesn't really work. So what started to happen was, you know, my friends were doing the build a mix suite at home, run into a studio for three, four days, track and over it up as much as you can, and then edit and mix for a couple months or something. Yeah, and everybody's getting deeper and deeper into a computer too. Yeah, so you're buying a Pro Tools rig and you're not charging more. You're just getting your time and, and you're at home and, you know, I'm married and still married and all that. And that didn't really appeal to me. I didn't know what the answer was, but I knew that wasn't it. So I just started thinking, you know, maybe I should get my own place. Like, a, but I want a tracking facility. Like, because yeah. that's, that's the part I like the best when I record is to track. And I want to expand that. I don't want to, I don't want that to get smaller in my process, you yeah. know. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. That's yeah. the difference in tracking is you're around people. And even when I was going into studios, we would track the whole time and just do overdubs as we went along. So everyone is involved and it doesn't get down to this one track, two track kind of thing. Yeah. So I started kind of defining what I wanted and, and I was working at about 10 different studios and I would travel a lot and it kind of got down to two different types of studios. Ones that everything worked, like every piece of gear worked, but you didn't really want to be in there. Right. 
for long periods of time. Did the ones with the, uh, well, I'm just glancing over. Yeah, no, we're safe. The ones with the black leather couch that felt like you were in a bank lobby? Right, exactly. And then there was ones that you really liked being in, but nothing worked. So then you don't want to be there. So it's like, there's got to be somewhere in between. So then I set out to find that. And I looked for a space for a few years, about two years. Like, you know, every, every day off, I would just go drive and look for places. And kind of ran through a bunch of different business models in my mind. It's like, do I buy a house? You know, like a separate house. And then like every band that records there like paints a wall as part of the rate, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> no, because then that's not really a studio. You know, my wife is really good at making, like I have ideas. She's like, that's great. Right. But you have to make it work financially. Yeah. Okay, here's a challenge. So I'm like, well, I need a place that I can, that can justify its own existence, right? That I can charge for it, not just get it. And then I can charge my rate because- Because then why get it? Then why yeah. get it? Yeah. Just work as You're just taking on the expense for the band at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And then in that, well, I can rent it to other people, which is great because then, you know, other engineers can use it. I can go somewhere else or I can stay home or whatever. So that, and then that kind of fed the tracking thing. It's got to be a tracking space, which again, I love to do. So kind of the epiphany was I had went down to, was that place that was on the row that sold Pro Tools rigs? Oh, again, okay. this is oh, um, yeah. Pro Audio or something yeah, like that. Exactly. And this is, you know, 10, 11 years ago. I say, hey, I need a 24 channel, 24 IO Pro Tools rig. And it was like 40 grand. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I can swear on here or not, but it was it, like. You can. It's actually, I rated it explicit just okay. for that very reason. But I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. At the time, I had already had two racks of gear and a two inch tape machine that I was hauling around to these studios because they had sold their tape machines. And I'm like, well, I already have a tape machine. And that's kind of what I use anyway. So why don't I not get a Pro Tools rig? And the epiphany was the thing that I don't have, the Pro Tools rig, will be my biggest asset. Yeah. And that's where the name came from. And that's where the whole thing came from. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I'll tell people now is because it sounded better, but it was like, I can freaking afford it, you know? And I don't have to charge people that 40 grand. I'd rather get square footage that I can grow yeah. into. And that's what yeah. I did. This, you know, so I found this place, convinced them to lease it to me for Describe this place. Where are we? Or where? And what did this used to be? Well, we're standing in, well, it used to be a record pressing plant. It was built in 1953 as a pressing plant. The whole building is 33,000 square feet. I now lease about 10,000 square feet. Most of it is one, one studio, not one room, but one studio. It's not like an A room, B room, C room right. kind of complex. Didn't want that. There's six people here. We're working on your record. The whole place makes noise. The same song. That's cool. The um, whole place makes noise. It's the same song. Yeah. I like it. So, which helps with isolation. You know, you guys are playing the same song, right? So, I had a checklist. I wanted ground level load in because I'd worked at studios that didn't have that. Yeah. It's not fun. And I wanted a big control room. So, we're standing in a 1,200 square foot control room. This is bigger than a lot of people's entire studios. It was bigger than my house when I leased this building. Nice. Yeah. So, I made a deal with my wife. I said, look, you know, I want to lease this space and build a studio. Randy Blevins hooked me up with a console, you know, because mm -hmm. I knew how to fix it. So he sold it to me kind of as is. What's the console that you have right here? It's a MCI 428 made in 1978. It's got really nice flashing lights on it. It does. Too. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But anyway, so I said, hey, Yoli, I'm to lease this space. It's X amount a month. And she's like, well, that's basically like getting another house. I said, but I think if I pick up a couple more projects a month, we'll break even and I can start building it. And we were probably four months away from having our second kid at the time. So the timing is everything, you know. 
And we just kind of agreed, well, look, let's just give it a year, you know? And I said, yeah, if I can't make a tracking facility work, like a unique tracking facility with like work in this town, I'm going to find something else to do. Because really at that point, if I wasn't tracking a band, I was doing editing, which I do not enjoy. Plus you're basically saying if I can't make a, a room that gathers human beings together to record in a city that has some of the best musician human beings on the planet. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. So it's on me. And if the industry I'm in can't support that, I'm going to go do something else. And that's why we have a big party every year because another year, you know? Yeah. And we're in our eighth year now. Gosh, there's so many things to talk about. Let's talk about the big party every year since we're here. Okay. What is it? It's different every year. Two years ago, we had the cutting room. It's just an excuse to challenge ourselves or do something fun and showcase the space and invite a couple hundred people and just have a party. Okay. So, so we're not talking about the recording summit. No, we're not. Just we're just talking we about should yearly. talk about that too. Okay, cool. And we're talking about our yearly like spring like anniversary party. Cool. But two years ago, we set up six different bands and recorded them all direct to disc at the same time. Like Playing dominoes. the same song? No, like one, one band plays a song and they stop. The next band plays the next song on the record, all the way through and the And were they all pre-miked up and in different mm-hmm. spots of yep. the studio? Yep. But you mix them live and in real time. Mm-hmm. That's yep. cool. And just move down the console. It's my right. turn to swear. That's cool as shit, dude. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> so I've been here for a live to disc event mm-hmm. for one of your recording summits. And I have to say, I mean, you know me, I'm a fan of mixing live to two track. It's what I've been doing at Bonnaroo mm-hmm. as well. And it was so cool to see it. It sounded so great. And the concept of it just going downstairs and being, you know, embedded forever mm-hmm. on a cutting lathe was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And, it, and it's fun because it challenges, you know, me as an engineer for no apparent reasons. Like no one's going to really hire me to record seven bands or six bands on one side of a record. So I'll just do it myself, you know. So rock stars, you so, hear that? If any of you are out there and you want to hire Chris <laughs> to record seven bands live straight to disc, Come do it. He's just waiting for you. He's got the skills. I'm one of the few that has it on the resume. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So tell us about the recording summit. Again, this is a great chance. You know, a lot of people listening would probably love to be here for that. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just another, like, I've got my own space now. I can do whatever I want. What do I want to do? It's kind of like a band with a budget. It's like, what is my record going to be? It's on me. So one of the things I enjoy is going to AES and going to potluck and all these things, but they're really big and it's kind of hard to figure out where you want to go. And, and there's a trade show and talks and parties and, and I can't always afford to go to New York, you know, or LA and all this kind of stuff. So I decided to have a small yet high impact summit here where there isn't a trade show. There isn't any conflicts of interest that happen. You know, trade shows, they want you on the trade show floor, but yet there's talks. So the talks can't be too good to pull people off the floor, you know, all that kind of shit. Nobody's wearing a headset microphone. None of that shit. And kind of the light bulb moment for that was I was speaking at one of these things and Chuck Anley is out in the audience and Lynn Houston and, and all these guys. And I'm not saying shit. What am I going to say? You know, and there's a mic, I'm wearing, a, there's a microphone and there's lights on stage and I'm just freaking out, you know, and just kind of staying real. I'm going to say facts that I know to be true and that's it. And that really isn't what it's about. And I was just telling somebody about it. Like, I was, you know, hey, yes, I man, I was scared, you know. I said, I just sit in front of consoles and talk to people all the time. And then yeah. it kind of hit me. It's like, well, we should just have one here. Sit but in front of the console. That's where everyone's more comfortable who makes music. So what we do is, is... 60 people can come. I may have said hundreds earlier, but that's cool. We'll, we'll Yeah, the parties a have bit. a couple hundred. All right, great. But the summit, it's 60 spots, and we have the live room is mainly kind of business panels. 
And then up here in the control room is mainly music-centric ones. So we have a Friday night kickoff party, which is, you know varies in theme. And then we've got panels throughout the day. And then a listening party Saturday night, which varies. I'm stunned at the people that say yes when I email them. Like one of the first ones out of the gate was Pink Floyd and Quad. And right. then Alan Parsons joins us via Skype to talk about it. And then... And then Sunday, there are more panels, and we just pick panels that come up in our day-to-day conversations, you know? Not so techy. like AES has a lot of panels that are really digging in deep, white paper kind of stuff. We do more, you know, the art of production and taxes and just stuff that— Yeah, stuff that you need to know as a studio owner. Yeah, right? exactly. And those are the ones that are the busiest. The pa- You know, the packed ones are like— Taxes and insurance. Right. Who does that? How to run your studio. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I've sat here and listened to Jakir King Mm -hmm. talk all about miking up acoustic instruments and getting ready to produce a record. Yeah, exactly. So there's only two panels going on at any given time. So you just have to choose between two. And that's that's the hard part right there. Yeah. And I think we're doing a good job when, you th- when it's hard to choose. You know, Don't forget, there's a lot of delicious coffee, mm-hmm. bagels, and donuts downstairs. So we have some sponsors, but we're not sponsor heavy, where the summit's not dictated by what the sponsors want to do. Right. You guys are talking about what you want to talk about. Exactly. And we can we can do it without sponsors if we choose. But we, you know, and to be a sponsor, mm-hmm. you bring coffee and bagels and you're a sponsor. (laughs) Thank you. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, so then um, you also do another very cool thing here called Tape Camp. Can you tell Mm. us a little bit more about that? Sure. That came more from people just emailing me through Mara Machine, just wanting to learn more about recording on tape. In the studio, it's like, oh, if I could just come and be a fly on the wall. It's like, well, you know, my clients probably wouldn't like that, you know. Men not want flies in this control room. Yeah. So twice a year in the spring and the fall, we invite 10 people and it's really affordable. It's not, it's not like mixed with the masters. I mean, it's 250 bucks, I think for a weekend. Right. And like a long weekend too. Yeah. And we do lunch, you know, so it's 10 people and like a Saturday, we just do everything analog. I mean, it's mainly like, this is kind of where Pro Tools came from is the theme of the conversation. It's like history lesson, but we pull up some two inch tapes and listen to some stuff and then have them listen to a plate and a spring reverb and tape delay and then set up an echo chamber and teach them how to splice tape, which is kind of fun. And then I have somebody come in around three or four, like acoustic guitar, vocal and record on like an eight track, you know, one inch eight track or something. And the next day I have a full band come in and everyone records and gets to punch in and be an assistant engineer and take counter numbers, verse, chorus, all that kind of stuff and, and just do things, you know. And so you may have just said this, I apologize, but are people getting a chance to understand how to align the machine and, and different tape formats and things That's like that? That's the third day, which is an optional day. And that's tape alignment. And we allow six people to attend that. And that's like... Because that's close quarters. You got to lean in over the machine and really know what's going on. Yeah. So the goal is that they learn how to do it in a day, which is a a lofty goal. But they understand the concepts. And what's fun is I used to give them worksheets and then they would just read along. But now I make them take their own notes because they learn. I think you learn better when you're writing it it down and... So I demonstrate a tape machine, and then everyone aligns it with guidance from me, and then we do lunch, and then afterwards everyone aligns it with like a lot less guidance from me. Yeah, so. and that's good. The writing down is important too because it can be easy to just sort of memorize a series of knob turnings, mm-hmm. and that doesn't really teach you how to align a different machine. No. But if you get the concept, you can kind of go from machine to machine and, and know what to do. Yeah, so we work on concepts, and what's fun is when the people that attend it have machines, and I know enough about a lot of machines where I can say, okay, on your machine, this is labeled this, but it's all the same thing. You know, it's gain, it's high frequency, it's this, it's that. 
much like the whole weekend is, you know, Pro Tools is this. This is this, you know, mm -hmm. so. Do you ever have people attending who don't already have a tape machine? Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're listening and you're just even curious, you know, what if you're a beginner? You can still show up? Of course. Great. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, well, so t let's talk about analog a little bit. I mean, here you have analog tape. You have a very cool mixing console. You've got a lot of outboard gear, yet you still have Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. And you did describe how you got into this, you know, this mm -hmm. sort of the distinction between where you wanted to invest at the beginning. But what have you discovered about the benefits of mixing through a console and analog tape and using outboard gear? Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think a lot of listeners are familiar with a, a laptop computer mm -hmm. and a DAW and plugins. Yeah. I mean, I should preface my whole answer to that question is I'm not like, you need to record like this. This is the only way to do it. I don't appreciate that mentality. I don't think that's healthy. But it is fun though, isn't it? Well, yeah, but what I strive to do and I encourage other people to do is get to the point, whatever your career is, is to be able to choose your tools. Yeah. You know, uh, I think we all want people to come to, to us, not for someone who can fill a, a seat between two speakers for X amount of dollars an hour, but I want Chris Mara to work on my record. And Chris, after you heard our music, how do you think we should do it? And I'm like, well, how do you want to do it? You know, and I'm comfortable in either world. Yeah. Kind of tape. Well, Pro Tools, well that's cool. Yeah. Disclaimers aside, yes. I think still somebody wants, who hasn't had a chance to work on analog, that may not have all the outboard gear and they're real curious, would probably just still love to hear you describing it. Like what are some yeah. of the things that happen when you're using? What What's exciting about tape? What's different about working on tape than working in a computer? Start there. Okay. I think the coolest thing about a tape machine is it changes your workflow. You buy a different microphone, it's not going to change how you record. So you're focused on how it sounds. So I always get the questions like, well, does tape sound that much better? It's like, yeah, it sounds better, but that's not the point. I'm sitting there with a band. I'm listening to the song. I'm counting the intro and the verse and the chorus and the second verse. Oh, it's two bars shorter. Okay, got it. You know, because when we rewind and someone wants to punch in, I can't just look at the waveforms and see where they get fat. Right. And know that's the chorus. I have to kind of know what's going on. And on the other side of the glass, the musicians, they have to learn how to play along and punch in. And the first one never works because they're ahead or behind or playing softer or louder. And then they, but they get it. It's like, oh, okay. And we work together. So I'm a better engineer because I'm using a tape machine and a console. And they they leave after a few days being a better musician in the studio because of that. Yeah. So now what you about know? how do you keep 20 playlists of 20 different solos when they're recording? You don't. When you're on you tape? say, what'd you think? Well, I liked some of it. What What's some of it? Let's get it. Let's, you know, let's fix it. You want to just do it again over that same one. And what I've been doing is when I do track in Pro Tools, we get done and I have one song. I just go over it. I just delete it and do it again. Yeah. You know, because I'm used to not having to wade through options. I'm used to making decisions. I still bust everything down the same way I do when I record on tape. You know, I take two mics on a, on a guitar amp down to one track. You know, just those kind of things that have been tried and two things you have to do on tape. And I think it's just a better recording method, Yeah, dare I say. All right, so share with us now kind of a badass trick that you that's fun to do in the tape world. Well, it's always fun to freak people out and punch in on tape or do a band punch and have it work. Because it does take, it's a team effort. You know, there's no going in and, 
F6 and crossfade it a little bit, you know. What is a band punch for somebody who doesn't know what that means? Okay, you got a great take, and the drummer goes the outro a little early in the last chorus, and everyone's like, fuck, that's it. that was so good. It's like, oh, no, don't freak out. Don't freak out. I'll just rewind. I'm going to hit play. When you know where you are in the song, start playing along. Always play along, and then I'm going to punch in all 24 tracks at the same time, and if I do my job right, you won't know what happened, and just end the song. And we do that, and it's, it's great. That's fun. Yeah. A more technical trick uh, I learned from a friend of mine, Ed Simonton, on tape that I still do in Pro Tools, even though it's not good disc space management. You need know, a lot of background vocals, and, they'll st- and the same singer will stack the parts. Happens here a lot in town. Yeah. And what I was doing was like, okay, they want to put, you know, the high part on. Okay, that's on track, whatever. And then I put their headphone mix up, and then I put my monitor mix up, and they put another part on. I have to turn those both down, you know. They put the third part, I have to turn those down and pan them. And we go to the next course and do the first part. Oh, I have to change it all again. Well, Ed's like, hey, you dumbass, just multi it and arm all the tracks so they're all there at the same volume. And then when you get the first part done, you just unarm that track, go to the next part. On those two tracks, they're still armed. When you get the second part, unarm that track. And the third part, and you move on. You don't have to change any headphones or anything. And that's that's really been kind of cool. I mean, people listening may be like, oh, we've been doing that since like, <laughs> you know, 78, but I learned it 10 years ago and yeah. I think it's cool. That's oh, cool. So. Yeah. Well, I like any of the things that make the process more seamless. When you start recording people and you're jumping around with things, you realize there's so many things trying to trip you up for making music and just confuse musicians in a pair of headphones. And mm-hmm. if you can just get their headphones to sound the same and consistent, yep. people yep. can start concentrating on music and not, not get, you know, shaken up by whatever you're doing as an engineer. Exactly. Yep. Cool. Well, let's see. I'm trying to think. You want to talk a little bit about the vinyl before we kind of take a break and then come back for the jam session? Sure, sure. Tell us a little bit about what you have here for your vinyl mastering. I know we did talk about it some, but mm-hmm. fill in some more some, some more details. Well, much like the studio being you know, a problem solver for me, having a space to record the people I want to record, once I started doing that, bands I was recording on tape were having their records released on vinyl, their projects released on vinyl. And I would get the record... And it didn't sound anything like the mixes. Yeah, I've had that experience too. And then I'd do another one. It sounded really, really good. And then I get another one. So I called a friend of mine. Well, not a friend of mine. I, I, I emailed Hank Williams, a mastering engineer. I said, hey, Mr. Williams, if you have a minute, you know, I've experienced this. And I think you would know the answer. So he explained to me over lunch what the vinyl mastering process is and what a cutting lathe is. Because I really, before that, didn't have, a, I didn't even have a mental picture of how I thought, I mean, I, I, for all I know, you t- put a thumb drive into a record press. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I didn't know, Yeah, you know? And he says, no, there's somebody else that changes the way it sounds and puts on a record. I'm like, oh, okay. And some people do it really well, and some people do it kind of, you know, this way. And, and It's oh, not one size fits all. It's not. And they change how it sounds. I'm like, oh, wow. Amazing. And then I did about 10 more records, and I decided, you know, ignorance, I'm ignorant, but I can probably do this as good, or if not better, than several of these I've, I've gotten. So I call Hank, I say, Hank, I think I should do this. He goes, I think you should too. So he helped out and met the right people and bought a lathe. And of course, Yoli, my wife, said, well, that's fine and dandy, but you need to make it work. Right. So I made some, got a wink and a nod from some potential clients and bought it and can you explain a little bit more what a lathe is and exactly mm-hmm. uh, somebody might, a lot of people are probably familiar with the turntable. They might right. hear you say lathe and they're like, oh yeah, you just bought a 
turntable. Right. So no, this is... Not quite that, is it? No, what the process is, is actually fascinating. You send us your WAV files, right? And we basically play those through this device that is like a turntable, but it's huge. It's gigantic. It's gigantic. It's the biggest Neumann badge you've ever seen. <laughs> uh, it's a Neumann uh, VMS-70. And it cuts the the master this onto this. It's a lacquer. It's a soft aluminum disc with a thin layer of lacquer coating on right. it. It's kind of like a turntable in reverse instead exactly. of... The record playing sounds through the needle up to the speakers, comes down through the wire and moves the needle and cuts into the record, right? Exactly. Yep, in real time. So, and you can change the way it sounds and all this kind of stuff. And then that master gets sent to somebody who makes a metal master of that. So you have grooves and then the metal has ridges. And we'll skip a couple steps, but then that, those ridges go into a press, which push onto actual hot vinyl slowly and then that becomes a record nice yeah and so now you guys uh there's there is a sort of full featured nature to what you guys offer for doing vinyl here right you can send what would somebody send you and what might they expect to come out of the other end of welcome to 1979 right currently right now today you can send us a wave file or tapes and we'll send the lacquer master to a guy that does the metal work this spring we'll be ready to do metal work here so we're the, we're the only place, I think, in the country that you could send a WAV file to and we could ship a metal stamper to a press pressing plant of your choice. Cool. So, so, so somebody who's considering it now, all they have to know is that they just send you their finished record mm-hmm. as a WAV file. Oh, it goes over the internet to get here. Yep. Yep. And then they tell you where the pressing is happening. And mm-hmm. next thing they know, they get a box full of records. Pretty much. That's not yeah. bad. Yeah. That's not bad. Is there a consideration that people should be aware of for how much time you need to allow for planning to, you know, go from start to when your boxes of records come? I know it's a busy industry right now. Yeah. Right now I've heard as much as six months to get your actual product back. So definitely plan ahead. Yeah. You know, as far as that goes. Start planning now, guys. Yeah. Yeah. We hope to to drop that down by a good bit. That's great. You know, so, or at least afford an option for speed. You know? Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, so Rockstars, just a reminder, we're about to take a break and go into the jam session. But remember, I'll include links to all this in the show notes so that you can just click right through and find out more about Chris, find out more about Welcome to 1979 and Mara Machines. And if you're listening to this on your iPhone right now, all you need to do is just open up the podcast app. You'll see the logo for Recording Studio Rockstars there if this episode is playing. Touch that. It'll unveil like a magical curtain, and then you'll see the show notes, and you can just click through right there to go straight to the website or go straight to Welcome to 1979. So we'll see you guys in a minute after this break. Hey, everybody. It's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hello, rock stars. It's Lid Shaw, recording studio rock stars, and we're back now here with Chris Mara at Welcome to 1979 Studio, and we're going to jump into the jam session. Chris, are you ready to jam? Yes. Awesome. Well, so when you started out in recording, what was something that was holding you back from getting going? I'd say Wisconsin. <laughs> was it that just the cheese is so delicious? It that really you didn't is. Want to yeah, leave? it's addicting. I mean, imagine, if you will, being seven hours north of Chicago, which really is five hours north of anything anyway. So I, there was no industry, there was no connections, there was no spark in that. I mean, the people up there are great. Let's not Love forget it. about Madison, though. We got Butch Vig up there in yeah. Smart Studios. But I was, too. I was five hours north of there, yeah. you know. And then you move to a town that has one thing going on, you know, your make or break could be a lot greater, you know. Okay, so so how'd you get over that? I moved here, yeah. And do you feel like uh, that obviously worked for you? So you you took Mm -hmm. yourself to a place where there was a lot of action going on in recording and music. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's the only option for people who may not be, you know, have a music city nearby? Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I don't think anyone moves to Clear Lake, Wisconsin, where I'm from, to do music. I don't know anyone that moved there, so... But um, you guys do a cool thing here, too, with the Recording Summit, for mm-hmm. example. You have people come from all over the country yeah. that are here for this intensive weekend, and then they go back to where they're in school, or they go back to the, you know, the, where their studio is in their hometown. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a cool way to open up a music hub to somebody who's not necessarily moving here permanently, exactly. too. Exactly. So that's great. And when I moved here, I was 20. I had an old mattress and a dresser. That was it. So. You literally moved with an old mattress? Mm-hmm. You didn't even get a new one no. at that point? Well, where would I get the money for that? <laughs> All right, cool. So, so Chris, uh, share with us some of the best advice you received. Man, Larry Crane is, is a good friend of mine, and he's a wicked smart bastard, too. But I read his rants and tape op a lot. And one, several years ago, was a little story about, you know, his friends are photographers, which is a hobby of mine. There's, they have a saying that if you see something cool happening— don't go back to your car to get the better camera. Because when you get back, the elk is done, you know, doing whatever right. it's, it's doing. It's always nature. Yeah, it's always nature, you know, or whatever. Um, so it's kind of like shoot the shot with what you have. And then if you have a moment, go back and improve it. Yeah. Or, you know, get the camera and now fix in the mix. You know what I'm trying to say? That has served me very well. Somebody's singing, someone's jamming, throw the mic up and go. Yeah. And I work with producers who will stop somebody from singing a great song and a great moment to try a different microphone. And I do it because I'm working for them, but I'm thinking, man, 
you know. Just blew it. I mean, I've got a 47. If you want to hear what a C12 sounds like, because, of, you know, what, <laughs> what the fuck? Just, you know, so. So that's tricky. Now, do you ever find yourself listening to the mic that's up and the performance and you still, something's bugging you like, oh God, I want to tr- switch the mic. Or no, I then like I will. Mic. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm not capturing it right, sure. But I, you know, my joke on a, on a, cause I track a lot, like yeah. on a really heated tracking date when ideas are flying, like I'm going to, I'm going to play this guitar instead or, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. My joke is I just use the mic with the best, best proximity, which is the closest one to me. Right. <laughs> you know, I'll just grab it, put it on there and go, yeah. you know. And if they start running through takes, then I run down there and switch it out, you know. But always record the first one. Always. Yeah, we used to call, there would there would always be some mic that sort of didn't have a specific name out there. Like it didn't have an assigned instrument. We call it Rover or right. something like exactly. that, you know. Yep. And just put Rover on it, you know. Yep. Just have yep. It's great to have a mic that you just move around. You don't care mm-hmm. which one it is. Put it on there and go. Um, all right. Well, so now share with us a, a great recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that our rock star listeners can use right now. So here's a fun circle of life. So Tape Camp, a guy who attended Tape Camp, who is a friend of mine now, he bought- He didn't like you during Tape Camp? No, he hated me. No. Don Hurl's <laughs> his name. No. So he can see Tape Camp, we became friends, and he has a Blue Stripe 1176, and I have a Blue Stripe 1176. And I went to his studio. We were just kind of dicking around some stuff. He's like, check this out. If you turn this knob, the attack knob, or release, I can't remember which one, it clicks, right? Clicks off. Right. The compressor the compressor circuit goes off. And he goes, and it'll distort. You just crank like, up the input even if it's bit, off? Just a little bit. It'll get this little hair on it. And there's no, I'm like, oh, that's cool. The very next week, Eric Burden comes here. And the producer's like, man, we just need a little bit of hair on that, you know? And I'm like, I got the thing. You know, and I didn't yeah. tell him, I just learned it. But it's funny that, you know, dare I say the student became the teacher, but Don taught me a trick. And so, and I've always been a fan of like, just the right kind of distortion on the right thing just yeah. makes or breaks it. It's like know? colors, subtle really colors, is. right? Yeah, yeah. So now have you found that, you know, Blue Stripe 1176, the hardware unit, that's a great tool to have around. Mm-hmm. I don't even get to work on those except for occasionally when they show up, you know. What are, have you seen a similar misuse or like kind of trick in the plugin world in Pro Tools? You know, have you experienced that sometimes you can run things through things and get that same similar, what do you call it, put a little hair on it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, no, I mean, I use Sansamp a lot in Pro Tools to get that same yeah. thing. Big big fan of Sansamp. Yeah, me too. And um, don't forget everybody, that one's usually free now, right? I think so. But one thing I learned on Pro Tools, I do a lot of, I have a lot of friends that, I, that have their own studios and I'll just go in and do like mix finishing, like I'll spend 30 minutes on a mix, you know, four or five mixes and then go home. And this one friend of mine, Billy Livesey, his mixes always sound, they have this thing to them and his gain staging is all fucked up. I mean, I'm talking like really fucked up. And what I used to do is go in there and kind of do a save as and start changing things around. And I'd get done, but it, it lost that, whatever right. that was. And about the third time over, I'm like, I'm just going to leave like the master fader down at minus 20. And that's where he had it, you know, and just and just mix in there. And he, it just had this like impact yeah. or, I don't know, weird. Not so, good, but cool. So what's the takeaway from that? Because that, uh, I've experienced stuff like that too, working with artists who have Pro Tools and they don't understand the things that I think we're all supposed to understand. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds great. You know, or they, they completely redline something and it sounds way better like that. Well, yeah. I mean, the takeaway, like mix finishing is kind of like walking in and just kind of, you know, seeing what's going on. And my dad has always taught me, you know, Mar machines is restoring and you're always fixing stuff and you're troubleshooting in sessions too. And my dad is an electrician and 
and fixes stuff. And he says, you should just not open your toolbox for like 10 minutes. Just look, listen, see what's going on. If you just grab a wrench and start wrenching, you're going to screw something up. Interesting. And that's kind of the thing there too. It's just like, you know, my old man's pretty smart. I keep learning that same thing over and over again, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of the lesson there. It's like, just, just listen, just look around, trust the process. Happens when drummers come in, you know, and set up their kit, like, yeah. like studio drummers. And they play, and you're like, that kick drum sounds like shit. But wait a second. Let's just let's just trust this. Put a mic where I know where to put it. And then the whole, you know, and it sounds great. All you of know? a sudden, they start playing the song along with other people, and everything sounds right. Yeah. There's a reason it sounds like that. Let's I've, not, you know. I've also, I feel like I see that repeatedly in vocal tones. You set up a sound for a vocal, and it's the what you would normally do. You know, it's the right pre. It's maybe some EQ, maybe not. It's the right um, one or two compressors or whatever you're using. But then something's not right. And you, I have to stop myself. You want to go start tweaking, then you're like, yeah, let's just wait a second. Let, mm-hmm. let them mm-hmm. warm up. And then all of yeah. a sudden they sing it a line just the right way and it's perfect. And you realize you had no control over it in the first place. It was just whatever's coming out of their mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's a great quote too about just, uh, what is it? Wait 10 minutes before you mm-hmm. open your toolbox? Yeah, he says that you, every toolbox should have a, like a timer on it. <laughs> Like a, right. like a time lock. <laughs> delay, time delay. You can't exactly. actually open it right away. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So um, now share with us a favorite hardware tool for the studio. Something that when you go to make records, you're always just glad you've got it. I rarely record without a DVX 160VU. Nice. They make sense to me. Now we're talking yeah. about the compressor, right? The compressor, yeah. The DVX 160. And I believe, is there a plug-in version of that is that perhaps i don't i don't know who knows who cares yeah i've got four of them i bought them when they were affordable i don't have any more because they're not affordable anymore. (laughs) all right so what are some things that you love to use them on kick snare guitars vocal bass background vocals lately i've been putting one behind another compressor as a limiter Mm -hmm. i'm not using one compressor too much like one's compressed and one like just limits. Or I'll use two 160s, like one compressor and one right behind it as a limiter on a vocal, especially. Somebody I don't know, I haven't recorded before. Right. Just really that little safety out. bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. What I grew fond of before I really had ears to know it sounded good, I just liked using it. Like I'm in a different studio. When I first started engineering, it's always vocals. Probably one of the hardest things to record, really. And they throw you in on it. And I'd be recording on tape one day and then radar the next and then Pro Tools the next. And metering is always an issue. Right. You never that. really know where you are, too. In a DBX 160VU, I'm not endorsed by them. They don't make them anymore. The metering's phenomenal. You hit input, you know where you're at. You hit gain reduction, you can gain reduction. You can guess on your on your makeup gain. You can hit output, and it's a VU meter, and you set it, and away you go. All right. How about a favorite software tool in the studio? Something you you like having around? The Sansamp we talked about. Mm-hmm. That's pulled me out of a lot of fires. Echo Boy. I started mixing in the box once I found Echo Boy. Yeah. Did you hear that sound, Toys? You're getting a lot of shout-outs on this, Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And unrehearsed shout-outs, I should say. Because I'm a big tape delay fan. I mean, I use tape delay all the time. Yeah. And I could never get it right. And I would, if I, when I was in the box, I would still go out to a machine for tape delay on the vocal or this or that. And I found Echo Boy. I was like, this is great. So. Yeah, I like it a lot. And you can get almost uh, reverbs out of it too. It's just sort of mm-hmm. get all this cascading delays. Yep. Just get things to sound gigantic. It's great. All right. So now here's a great one for you, Chris. What about a resource for the business side of doing a studio? I'd like to hear even more than one answer from you. But, you know, a resource, whether it's something online or a person or just advice. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got to say, Yoli, my wife, runs the business side. And 
So just call Yoli, everybody, yeah. and, and ask her if she can help I you. I mean, she's houses. brilliantly smart. She is penny pincher, like big yeah. time. And I can spend money like it's going out of style. Uh-huh. You know, like my motto is this stuff doesn't just spend itself. You have to work at it every day. <laughs> so she's financially conservative, was what I was trying to find earlier. So, I mean, she she's the one that grew Mara machines. And I mean, I used to have to like get a deposit from you, take that money, go buy a machine and then restore it and sell it to you. And now we've got 50 of them in stock wow. that are paid for because she's just like, wait a second, wait a second, this and that, you know, and very nice to people. She can collect money very well because she can be nice, but yet firm, firm, right you know? Well, I know Yoli from coming to the recording summits, mm-hmm. and she's always, you know, there welcoming you yeah. as you arrive and get your badge and everything. Yeah. And I've thought it was very cool how you guys work together on building this whole studio and mm-hmm. doing that. Did you come from a background of business understanding yourself? Did mm-hmm. you, you know, have any vision for that? Or is it, you know, is the takeaway, whether it's your wife or a friend or a partner, that sometimes the lesson is team up with somebody who's really good at it? Yeah, I mean— yeah, I backed into the, being a business owner, you know. I mean, I'm, I love being self-employed, and that's as much as I've ever thought about business. And which leads to my next answer is just I've got a lot of friends and neighbors that are a lot smarter than me, and we drink wine and, and stare at fires, and I play golf with them, and they teach me things just on their business and how they think about things. And it's just like, wow, you know, because sometimes if you're in the same business and and all of your mentors in the same business, then you can kind of get in this like mental like paradigm, you know, where everyone kind of thinks about things the same way. Right. You're not thinking outside of the box because you're all thinking inside the same box. Yeah, exactly. You know, and then when we started this new business, this metal business for the vinyl industry, and I immediately partnered up with a very smart CFO and said, you know, do you want to go in business together? It's a separate business. And I'm learning so much about from her about just how to think, you know. Yeah. And how to approach What things. advice do you have for somebody who is looking for a business partner about how to find Somebody is a great business partner and maybe about what to watch out for if you're considering a partnership in business. You know, flashy is not the answer. And no offense. Flashy? Flashy. And no offense to all my friends who uh, they don't just walk in and start telling you how much they make. Right. Everyone that I look up to is very unassuming, you know. And I mean, you see this in the music industry all the time. The best engineers typically won't tell you what they worked on. You got to kind of pull it out of them. Right, right. And I see the opposite sometimes in, in people that fund projects I'm working on. They're real like, you know, I make six figures. It's like, who, who cares? You know, that would be my thing. Next question. This is hypothetical, but if you were starting all over again and you landed in some new city, you didn't know anybody, you needed some sort of studio to start recording, some simple setup. You needed to find people to record. And you needed to make ends meet so that you could keep doing this and not just go deliver pizzas for the rest of your life or, mm-hmm. you know, go work in a cubicle. Um, what would you take? How would you find people? And how would you make ends meet? I think I'd marry a rich banker. And No, I'm just kidding. I think what I would do is find bands and say, look, I'd retain like a good vocal chain, something I could use on vocals and electric guitars and that kind of thing. And well, let me, let, me, let me start you out here too. Yeah. Let's just keep it in the analog world for a minute because okay. you do sell these amazing tape machines and stuff. What if somebody wanted to start with a very simple analog setup and start recording bands? Oh. What would you recommend? I would say a one-inch A-track machine and a small console, like even a Mackie 16-channel. So like eight, like a 16-channel and then like an eight-channel one mm-hmm. for return. Mm-hmm. So you, got, you can bust some stuff down, mm-hmm. you know, or a little Toft or something like that, you know. 
Because I have a long-standing theory, and one of these days I'm just going to put some money into it. And my theory is this, that we take two 20-somethings who want to go in recording school and pull them before they go in and say, okay, look, you're going to get a a 24-channel Pro Tools rig, and you're going to get, and the second person's going to get a little mixer and an 8-track, like a 1-inch 8-track, like a real 8-track, for six months, and then we'll switch. And the theory that I'm posing is the person that started out with the mixer and the tape machine transitions to Pro Tools seamlessly. I mean, a little like, oh, what's this red button? Oh, okay, I got it, right? right? Mm-hmm. And he'll be making music in no time. The other person will have to start all over again, right? So, yeah, so I, I would say an 8-track, a little mixer, you know, and, and some and some just and a slew of 57s. All right, so and now how do you find people to record with this, this new gear? You tell them, hey, I've got an 8-track machine and a little console and a bunch of 57s and go to your local thrift store or record store and pull used records out, and that's how they did them. Right. That's what I'd say. Um, what advice do you have for people as far as just surviving through this process? I mean, you still got to eat, you still got to pay some bills. What do you do at the beginning just to get get rolling before you before people are really paying you a living wage for making records? In a different scenario or in that scenario I just painted? How about that scenario where you just painted? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a tough one, you know, because I do feel, you know, I, I got real lucky and I had a, a couple different ways to make money on assisting and stuff. Have you seen people do well holding down a part-time job at the same time as building up their, their recording? Yeah, I mean, what career? I did is I, I had a, I was a bellman at a downtown hotel for nice. my first four years. And I was there, I did that because I had to work. Is that where you got the analogy, the, the line, you can't unring a bell? No, that's a good one. <laughs> that was my pickup line. No, so what I did is I, I worked every Saturday and Sunday. You can't untip a bellman. There you go. <laughs> and yes, you can. <laughs> no, I would work every Saturday from 6 a.m. to, to 2 p.m. and every Sunday. And then I work like a Tuesday or Thursday. And I covered every holiday. Everybody owed me a favor. So if a gig came up, you know, at the time I was working at a studio that didn't really work weekends, so that's why I was free. But if a weekend thing came up, I could just bail on it because somebody owed me a favor. You nice. Know? And, and you selectively chose 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. because that typically doesn't conflict with recording sessions, especially right. those ones that get rolling sometime afternoon. Right. Right. Exactly. So maybe that's the advice is, you know, find something that really is just the yeah. other hours. I don't know when you sleep, but that's all right. You well, figure Uber's that out a great 20. thing now. I mean, Uber's an awesome thing. You know, it's totally flexible. You turn it on, you go to work, you know, you make some money. The thing about a bellman is, I, you know, if you're motivated and you can hustle, you can make money. Yeah. You know? And that's an important thing to be able to do if you're mm-hmm. going to make records for a living, too. Yeah. So, and, and keep your overhead low. I mean, I see so many people saying, yeah, you know, it'd be fun to go on the road with a band or, or be a recording engineer if I can make like 55 or 60K a year. It's like, yeah, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bet you it would. But if you keep your overhead low, and then you can have that shitty job and work on what you want to work on. Yeah, you know that's great advice. All right, so um, here's the final doozy of a question: What is the single most important thing that our listeners can do to become a rock star of the recording studio themselves? Man, be nice, work hard, and especially in a studio, listen more than you talk. Yeah, that's ironic being on the podcast where I'm talking a lot today, but do a lot of listening. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, how can listeners find you and uh, follow you and learn more about Welcome to 1979? Uh, I have a website, welcome to 1979.com, mm-hmm. uh, maramachines.com. That's the two best ways. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. And I'll include links, of course, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Chris, thanks so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars, man. You are a rock star. Well, thank you, Liz. I appreciate the opportunity. Seriously. Yeah. Cheers. We'll see you around the studio. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw. And this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Hey,